Welcome to the Well Community Church Podcast. For more information on us and our mission to help people connect to God and to each other in every neighborhood, check us out at thewellcommunity.org or on our app, The Well Friends. Well, it's good to be with you tonight. Hey, for those of you who missed, by the way, Serve Fresno, you missed a heck of a time, as you saw in the video. It was so much fun just sort of diving into neighborhoods, maybe neighborhoods you haven't been that up close and personal with. Uh, some of you are more personal with things than you cared to be personal with because I was cleaning up human feces in an alley and whatever else. But we're serving parts of our city uh, that are just in some ways neglected and unreached. And I hope you were encouraged by that. If you missed it, our life groups are going to be serving throughout the year. We are ratcheting up our serve faithfully component of every life group is going to have a service element to it. And so if you missed it but you are in a life group, good news is you'll get to swing out there and, and serve here in our city throughout the year. Second, before we get into the text, a couple weeks ago, uh, I kind of threw out unofficially here to this gathering uh, an idea we were toying with, a concept of open groups and inviting people to come. We'll do tables at midweek and People can come and, and enjoy a, a little worship, a little message, and then some small group time. And we said, we, we're going to need some folks to help pull this off. I just wanted to encourage you with how many cards came in. There was just a number of folks who were like, man, I'll do that, and I'll serve with kids, or I'll rotate, or I'll lead an open group. Now, I just want to throw that out again. If that intrigues you at all, if you'd be interested in, in kind of taking the step with us into service, look, we'll walk with you, we'll train you, we'll coach you, we'll be with you. We're not just kind of throwing you out there and saying good luck. Uh, if you'd be interested in that, it's an idea that's gaining traction and uh, probably looking at a January launch uh, of that sort of open group concept. But if you'd like to be a part of that, grab one of those welcome cards and just throw it in the back on your way out. But before you do that, Amen. Turn to 2 Timothy. We're going to dive back into 2 Timothy and continue our journey here uh, throughout this book, this second epistle that Paul writes to Timothy. And we're, we're kind of asking and answering or maybe looking into tonight, uh, how does the Bible show a believer how to stay on track in a crazy world? And so that's kind of the theme of where we're heading here this evening. And one of the things we've seen repeated through both 1 and 2 Timothy, and it's, it's a little bit of a broken record, is this idea of be careful about false teaching. Be careful about false teaching, and then again, be careful of false teaching. And if you just look in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, verses 2 through 5, you see the results of false teaching. This is what false teaching brings. It says, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revelers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of God, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they've denied its power. Avoid, he says, such men as these. Now, I don't know if Paul was reading the papers uh, here in our culture, but uh, you can see the results in our culture of what false teaching looks like. It looks a lot like that. And so we need to be careful as believers to not get distracted by false teaching, and we need to be prepared. Because one of the things that will happen as we continue to follow God, as we seek to live out the scriptures, as we seek to stand with the gospel, as we seek to hold to what the word of God calls us to hold to, is that uh, we are going to look very, very different from the world around us. And, and I know some people get a little chicken little when they look at our culture and say, oh, it's all going crazy. I think God has it right where he wants it. 
And I think what God longs for more than anything is for us to be light in a dark place. And I don't think we should be surprised that if by following Jesus, we stand out a little bit and take a little heat for that. Jesus said in John chapter 16, these things I have spoken to you that you may have peace. In this world, he says, you will have trouble, but take courage, I have overcome the world. So we, we know that as believers, we're gonna take a little heat, we're gonna have some tribulation, we're gonna have some hardship. Uh, that's in some ways to be ex- expected because the light does shine in dark places. And a believer will stand out and look very different in a, a world that's in chaos. And that's sort of the backdrop now of verse 10. When you look at verse 10, Paul says, now look, you, you have followed, Timothy, my teaching. You followed my conduct, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, and my perseverance. And in many ways, the persecutions and sufferings that uh, Paul has gone through, Timothy was well aware of them. He says in verse 11, these persecutions and sufferings such as has happened to me in Antioch. And if you recall from the book of Acts in Antioch, that's when Paul was run out of the city of Antioch in Acts 13. The sufferings he went through uh, at Iconium, which is where the mob was stirred against him and they stoned him and left him for dead. That's in Acts 14. And also in Lystra, which is when it's a very strange thing. In Lystra, this, this crowd gathers around him. They think Paul and Barnabas are like Zeus and Hermes. So they want to like offer offerings to them and, and everything. And Paul, of course, is not having that. And he says, in the persecutions uh, that I endured, then out of them the Lord rescued me. Now, it's worth noting that the Lord rescued him doesn't mean that the Lord delivered him out of the suffering. It meant that the Lord carried him through the suffering. I think sometimes when we read passages like that, we're like, yes, Lord, rescue me from this. Get me out of this. But that's not necessarily the way the Christian life works. We are, we are not promised when we follow Jesus that we'll be rescued from difficulty. Like God doesn't want you to endure any hardships. So he's going to remove you from anything that might be difficult. Those of you who are parents, you understand how awful that would be for your kid. Now, it's not to say that's not your heart for your kid. If you could save your kid from any hardship, you, you and I would probably do all we could to give them the most charmed life possible, but we all know that they would just turn into spoiled brats who have no perseverance, no endurance, no, no long-suffering. And so what he says here is that the Lord has rescued me from them all. Again, not deliverance from, but presence in the midst of. I love the way Paul puts this in 2 Corinthians 4. He says in verses uh, 17 and 18 that momentary light afflictions are producing in us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comprehension. While we look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporal, the things that are unseen are eternal. There is for us as believers a, a set of momentary light afflictions that just are present that whatever sufferings may be, whatever difficulties might be in your life, and it could be a myriad of things, those things are in our life and, and they're doing a work in our life. And if we're gut level honest, oftentimes it's the difficulties that cause growth. It's the hardships that actually produce something in us that is more beautiful than had we had peace. And so for a believer, we need to recognize uh, that in many ways, hardship and trial is the typical road we must walk. It, it's not like that, that's evidence that your walk with God is not going well. That's prosperity gospel, and that is a false teaching. To assume that if you love Jesus, you'll never get sick, 
You'll never have cancer. You'll always be wealthy. You'll never lose your job. That, that's, that is a false gospel. What the gospel says is in the midst of whatever is thrown at you, there's a perseverance that we have. I'm, I'm mindful of Matthew 5. By the way, we're going to get to 2 Timothy in just a minute. But in Matthew 5, where Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth, but if salt has become tasteless, uh, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. He says, a city set on the hill cannot be hidden. Now, we are light shining in darkness, yes, and we are salt preserving death, and the assumption in both of those is the proximity to darkness and death. That is the invitation of a believer. It's the calling of a believer. And as we enter into darkness, being light, as we enter into the decay of the world, being salt, uh, it comes with a cost. And the cost is there's a bit of suffering and difficulty that is inevitable for a believer. If you are a follower of Jesus, verse 12 tells us, you will be persecuted. That's exactly what he says, right? Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. Why? Because you stand out. Because you just look different. You live different. You think different. You believe different. You behave different. Why? Because the Bible is what's driving your life. So you're not, you're not seduced by the false teaching of the world that says, if you want it, go get it. You're not seduced by the false teaching of the world that says, if it's a passion of yours, then it must be okay. You're not seduced by all of that. You say, no, no, I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who lives, it's Christ. It reminds me of like Daniel in Babylon. So Daniel and his three buddies, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah end up in Babylon. And the Babylonians are like, hey, look, you, if you're here, and you're now here, whether you like it or not, uh, you're going to be Babylonian, so you're going to learn our history, and you're going to dress like us, and you're going to talk like us, and you're going to eat like us, which to us, that doesn't seem like a big deal, but Daniel and the boys circled up, and they go, hey, look, we can, we can learn their history. We can, we can talk like them and dress like them, but we're not going to eat like them because what they eat has been sacrificed to an idol, and we're not going to do that, and so Daniel says to the uh, jailer whose life depends on their development to be fully Babylonian, he goes, look, I understand what you want us to do, and we'll do these three things, but we're not doing that. But just test us in this and see if we don't stand out as, as different. And so sure enough, if you know the story of Daniel and the boys, they, they do exactly what they said they do, and they just thrive. God just makes them stand out. And it's that distinction that causes people to look at us very differently. Think about it practically in your life. Have you ever... Uh, if you've trusted Christ, have you ever had the situation where because of your faith, because of how you live, because of what you believe and how you put the Bible into practice, that you just look different from those around you and they threw a little shade at you for looking different? Uh, I can remember I was 21. I just trusted Christ and I was living in a fraternity. Not necessarily the best combination for sobriety, living in a fraternity, but now I was a believer, so I'm no longer gonna do what I used to do. And all of my buddies were like, oh man, when you turn 21, we'll take you out, it'll be great. I go, yeah, that'll be awesome. I'm just not gonna drink. And they're like, we'll call you. So I'm at home on my 21st birthday and none of my friends called me. And I'm literally like dressed, ready to go. You know, nobody called me. And so I reached out, I found out where they were, and I showed up, I go, what, what's the deal? They're like, well, you're not gonna drink. 
So we didn't call you. I'm like, it's my birthday. But, but, I, but I threw, they threw a little shade on me there. I felt kind of persecuted by that. So because I'm a believer, I'm no longer your friend because I'm not willing to do what you're doing. That's what happens when you follow Christ. And Paul's saying that is a very normal thing. All who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. And be cautious, verse 13, evil men and imposters, they will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. They are seeking to lead you astray, these false teachers. They want you to buy into the lies of the world. They want you to live like everyone else lives. They want you to take the word of God as a recommendation or an option, not as an authority in our lives. And they want you to live towards whatever you feel is right. At the end of the book of Judges, there is a line in the book that is one of the most terrifying passages in all of your Bible. It simply says this, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. God help us. If what's driving us is our passions. And he says in verse 14, it's not so for you. Not for him nor for us. He says, but you, however, continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Now, this is interesting. Question, what were the things that Timothy had learned? Because there, no, there is no New Testament Bible at this point, historically. Uh, what sacred writings had he been taught? What, um, what sources of wisdom was he gleaning from? What writings was he reading that led him to salvation? And the answer is he, he's reading his Bible. But he's not reading a New Testament. He's reading his Old Testament. He, he's learning, if you remember from chapter 1 of this book, verse 5, he's learning from his mom and his grandma, who had tremendous faith, who had a belief in the Jewish God and looking for the Jewish Messiah, saw Jesus as the fulfillment of that, and they just faithfully passed on that belief uh, here to Timothy. And so the, the simple answer is what, what they had believed in was the scriptures. And that's where you get now verse 16. What makes the Bible so important? Well, the Bible is so important because it is inspired by God, and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. Now, the simple answer is, what, why is the Bible so important? Because the Bible's not an ordinary book. And, and the Bible informs us of how we live as believers in a world that's full of chaos. A, a Bible is a book that shows us what God's desire is for us, not false teachers, but, but what God wants for us. And the Bible is not an ordinary book in that it is literally, according to verse 16, inspired by God. That, that phrase is the word theopneustos. It means literally God breathed. So, so the Bible is is breathed by God. It's the very word of God. And what's interesting about the Bible is it's inspired by God, but God used human authors. Listen to what uh, the Bible says about the use of human authors. This is a good cross-reference. You might want to write this down next to this passage because these two give us a little bookend of what inspiration of your Bible really means. 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21. The apostle Peter now speaking, he says, but we know, first of all, that no prophecy is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy has ever been made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. 
So what that means or suggests is that there's a co-authorship that's happening divinely inspired using human authors, which is why you can read four gospel accounts all covering the same life of Jesus, and they all four seem very different because the authors are all four very different. Um, That's why you can read Paul's writings, and it carries a different tone than Peter's writings because God's using the human authors. But notice verse 16 says, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for four very interesting things. For teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. We were in teaching team this week, and one of the gals who crashes our teaching team is uh, the gal who runs our women's life group and then our, our life groups in general. Her name's Melissa Denisi. Very, very sharp gal. And she made the observation. She goes, you know, it's interesting. Teaching is showing you the right track. Uh, reproof alerts you when you're off track. Correction shows you how to get back on track, and training shows you how to stay on track. I thought, that's catchy. That works. And if you think about it, that's exactly what the Word of God does. It it shows you the right track. It alerts you when you're off track. It shows you how to get back on track, and it helps you know how to stay on track. That's exactly what the Scriptures do. But notice in verse 16, it says, not just Scripture is inspired by God. It says what before that? How much of the Scripture? All of it, which means both Old and New Testament. Um, It is fascinating to me how many Christians, when you talk about the Old Testament, the pages are still stuck together. Because it's like, I don't know what's going on over that. I'm just going to stick with Jesus. And I I appreciate that. When I uh, was a young believer, one of the first Bibles that was given to me was a New Testament with Psalms. And I loved it. I wore it out. And then I realized, oh, there's more to the Bible than just the New Testament in Psalms. And so it's interesting. All Scripture is inspired by God, which begins then to beg the question, well, if it is all inspired by God, both Old and New Testament, can it be trusted? Um, I mean, if we ask questions honestly, weren't the Scriptures written like a long time ago? Weren't they written by like all kinds of different people and we don't even know who they are? Can they be trusted as authors? How do we know that they captured the right thing? Um, Doesn't it contain this Bible all kinds of errors and contradictions? How, How do we even know what we have today is accurate considering the Bible was written in Hebrew and Greek and a little Aramaic and we're reading English. So how do we know? And by the way, how did we even get our Bible? Well, I'm so glad you asked because we're going to actually answer those questions. Let's talk about that for a minute. Your Old Testament was written initially in Hebrew. It was called the Tanakh. And the Tanakh was an acronym for the three divisions in what was called the Hebrew Bible. And the three divisions of your Old Testament were called the Torah, which was Genesis to Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. The Nevi'im. This is a little Hebrew. You don't have to remember this. But the Nevi'im, which is the prophets. And then the Ketuvim. Uh, which were the writings. Now, the Old Testament is the basis of the Jewish faith. So if you talk to a Jewish person, they're reading the Old Testament. They're reading it most likely in Hebrew. You're reading it in English. But it is the basis of the Hebrew faith. And the beauty of that, for us at least, as followers of Jesus, we believe that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament was looking for. Which means then, by the time the New Testament comes around, or Jesus at least comes around, or Paul is writing to Timothy here in Ephesus, uh, the good news is we already have the Old Testament solidified. There was very little debate 
as to which books were contained in the Old Testament because it was already an issue solidified by the Jewish people, which means then we've got 39 books solidified already in what is what many have called the canon of Scripture. The word canon means a, a rule of law, a, a measuring stick, if you will, a standard. So the canon of the Scripture is the standard books of our Bible that we consider to be authoritative. So 39 of them. Now, the interesting thing about that is the accuracy of the Old Testament is affirmed by two primary means. One is internal support. So your Old Testament is quoted in your New Testament 300 times. And so there's a sense of continuity between what was said there and what's quoted in your New Testament. For example, Jesus said, do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I didn't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So there's, there's sort of a hand-in-glove relationship with your Old and your New Testament. There is a modern trend happening right now where people will say, yeah, 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 but it's really not literal. I mean, what took place in your Old Testament, you can't really read Genesis, and it says, in the beginning God created. It's, it really doesn't mean that. It means something else. Well, I say, okay, time out. You have a problem. Because if Genesis is not literal, then Jesus is not literal because Jesus quotes Genesis. If Genesis is not literal, then your New Testament is not literal because your Old Testament, which includes Genesis, is quoted 300 times in the New. And there's no limiting principle. So, So how do you determine when you read a text, this is not literal, but this is? This one's true, but this one, this is, this is allegorical. If there's no limiting principle, you've got a serious problem. Because what you've just done is said your entire Bible is fanciful. It's folly. It's not literal from Genesis to Revelation, if that's the way you interpret the text. By and large, the Bible says what it means and means what it says. So the internal um, support affirms the accuracy of your Bible. You take it as you can, as often as you can, considering the literature that you're reading, the genre of literature. So if you're reading poetry, if you're reading Song of Solomon, and it says her hair uh, is like a flock of goats descending from Mount Gilead, it doesn't mean she looks like a goat, okay? It's poetry. So you, you interpret that knowing it's poetry, but by and large, the Bible says what it means and means what it says. The second means of affirmation, though, that we have of our Bible is uh, external affirmation, meaning the Bible talks about the, um, the city of Babylon had gates called the Ishtar Gates. Well, they actually found them. They're on display right now in the uh, Pergamum Museum in Berlin. The Bible talks about um, Cyrus, a king who uh, was the king of the Persian Empire, who uh, comes in and defeats Babylon. Well, if you go to the British Museum, they actually have the cylinder of Cyrus there talking about that very battle. Um, You can um, find the Dead Sea Scrolls that they found in a city called Qumran. You can pull out the book of Isaiah and, uh, and recognize that with every archaeological discovery they find, it affirms our Bible. So there's external support that this is actually uh, true. Well, that's the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? How did the New Testament come into existence? Well, the New Testament began, much like the Old, at least, at the beginning, uh, in oral tradition. The stories were being told because John was having dinner with you, and so John told you the story of Jesus with the woman at the well. So that's how the stories began. in the first century, the, fourth, or the four Gospels were written and almost immediately accepted. Uh, probably the earliest being John, or Mark, rather, the final one being John. 
Paul wrote 13 epistles, and uh, they were very quickly accepted as well. Um, one of the nice things is Peter, in 2 Peter 3, uh, talks about Paul's writings being hard to understand. So if you've ever read the book of Romans and your hard drive locked up, you're in good company, so did Peter's. And he says to them, though, some of these, his writings are hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort just as they do the rest of the scriptures. So here's Peter saying that Paul's writings are the rest, like the rest of the scripture. So he equates them. By the end of the second century, we have 21 New Testament books that are accepted throughout the ancient world, and which begs the question, what was the, the criteria with which they accepted it? So like the book of Larry, why, why isn't the book of Larry in your Bible? And, and they had a couple of reasons. One, it had to be apostolic authority. It had to be somebody who was with Jesus personally or somebody who had indirect relationship with him through an eyewitness. So direct, that would be Matthew, uh, Matthew and John. Indirect, Mark and Luke. So Mark interviewed Peter. Luke wrote a two-volume research paper called the Book of Luke and the Book of Acts, but they had second sort of indirect eyewitnesses. Second thing, though, they had to have what they called the witness of the Spirit, which meant it needed to exalt Christ. It needed to be sound theologically. One of the uniquenesses of your Bible is Scripture interprets Scripture. So if you find a passage and you think it says that, and nowhere else in your Bible does it say that, you probably need to look again. But if you find it saying that, and then you find over here it actually says that too, now you've interpreted your Bible correctly. So it had to be, um, it had to have the witness of this, the uh, Spirit. It also had to have what they called the affirmation of the body of believers. So in John 16, Jesus says to the disciples in, uh, in this transition right before the cross, he says, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will lead you into all truth. So there was a sense that the Spirit of God was gonna lead the disciples, plural, into all truth. And so there was a process by which the Spirit of God was going to use them, and therefore uh, it was affirmed uh, by other believers. As they wrote, the, the believers went, yes, that's exactly what happened, and so it was affirmed. The final one is um, that it was widely accepted. Widely accepted. Now, the interesting thing about that is it meant that these letters were circulated throughout the early church, and a scholar named F.F. F. Bruce says this, the New Testament did not become authoritative for the church because they were uh, formally included in the canonical list. On the contrary, the church included them on the canonical list because they had already regarded them as divinely inspired and recognized their worth and their apostolic authority, whether direct or indirect. Meaning they, they didn't become popular because they were on the list. They were already popular until they put them on the list, if that makes sense. What was the gathering process of how we got our New Testament? Well, by the middle of the third century, origin of Alexandria drops a list of 27 New Testament books. Eusebius, who was in Caesarea, follows shortly after, same 27 books. By the middle of the fourth century, a guy named Athanasius affirms those 27 books. By the close of the fourth century, there had been four ecumenical councils, an imperial edict by the emperor Constantine, and 66 books are affirmed, 39 in your Old Testament, 27 in your New Testament. And what's interesting about your Bible is that it, com it communicates one central story, one central theme from Genesis to Revelation, all right? And that is this. Uh, even with 66 different books, even written by over a 1,500-year period of time, even written by 40 different authors in three languages, the theme of your Bible is the glory of God 
through, through the exaltation of the person and work of Jesus Christ. The hero of your Bible is not Moses or David or Paul. It is Jesus from beginning to end. In John chapter 5, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think in them you'll find eternal life. It's them that speak of me. All throughout your New Testament, whether it's John 5, Jesus says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for Moses wrote of me. Whether it was the road to Emmaus, where Jesus says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them all of the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures. Or even in Acts 8, when Philip um, meets the Ethiopian eunuch, and Philip opens his mouth, and beginning from the scriptures, he preached Jesus to him. All the way through, Jesus is like the, respectfully, the where's Waldo of your Bible. If you're familiar with that character, he's in there somewhere. You just got to find him. And every, every story, one author said, whispers his name. But can it be trusted? I mean, I, mean, I get how it's assembled. I, I get that they, they affirmed it. But, but when you say, like, the affirmation of the Spirit, that feels a little mushy to me. How do we know that we know that we know that it is accurate? And the good news is there are two ancient texts that have the highest degree of accuracy uh, in the ancient world. The first is uh, from a guy named Homer, not Simpson, the other one, the older one, okay? Homer, who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, 8th century B.C., so we're an old school book. And uh, there are 300 copies uh, of the Iliad. That's the one that has the highest degree of accuracy, um, of his writings at least. So uh, 300 cop copies, 95 percent accurate, which is pretty remarkable. So just imagine you take all 300 copies and you line them up and you just kind of make sure this word is in all 300. This word is not in all 300. What, what's missing? Okay. Or, and then they come up with the exact, like this is what he meant to say. And so it's 95% accurate with 300 copies. I know I'm in the weeds a little bit, but stay with me. Uh, what about the Bible? Well, there's not 300 ancient copies. There's, there's uh, 30,000. Okay, so we have a lot more copies to work with. And the Bible has a 98.5% uh, of accuracy. And here's what we know about the inaccuracies. There are 10,000 places in your Bible uh, that are miscopied. There, there are issues with. Of those, uh, all but 400 can be corrected mechanically. Dot the I, cross the T, move on. Not a big deal. Out of those 400, 50 of those Errors will change the meaning of the text, but none of those areas affected uh, impact any area of biblical theology that's not documented elsewhere. So no error changes a theological point that isn't somewhere else corrected for us, and so we can see what it really meant. What does that mean? It means the Bible has the highest degree of accuracy of any book on the planet ever, ever. So you don't need to know Greek. You don't need to know Hebrew. Your English translation is a fantastic translation, assuming you've got a good one, because there are some bad ones out there. You want a word-for-word -word translation. You want a New American Standard Bible or an ESV? Those are the best choices. I'm not a fan of the NIV. I call it the nearly inspired version, although most of you probably have that, okay? So I'm not, it's better than nothing. But the point is, um, you want a word-for-word -word translation, and they've done a great job of capturing the text. Why is that significant? Because the law of the Lord is perfect, Psalm 19, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, 
enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than fine gold, sweeter than honey, and all the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. There is something to be said about the word of God. There's nothing like it. Not another book ever written in the history of books that is like your Bible. Why? Because it is inspired by God. And it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And a blessed life that can endure chaos, a blessed life that can stay faithful to God in the midst of whatever's happening around, that can be preserved or rescued from trial in the midst of whatever's happening, is a person who takes heed to the word of God. Psalm 1 is a great passage, and I'll close with this. It says that the, uh, the blessed life is not a life that makes a lot of money. It's not a life that carves out a living for themselves or who, you know, uh, pursues their own passions. No, a blessed life is one who delights in the law of the Lord and who meditates on the word of God day and night. And he or she will be like a tree planted by a stream of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither and whatever they do, they will prosper. There is just nothing like saturating your life with the inspired word of God. And so what does that mean about our Bible? How incredible is it? It is inspired, it is inerrant, it is authoritative, and it is powerful. And so what Paul is trying to get Timothy to understand is not only can it be trusted, it is the very word of God. So regardless of what circumstances are surrounding, regardless of what happens in our world, regardless of what sufferings or chaos or persecution come our way, if we are clinging to the word of God, we are right where we need to be, asleep in the midst of the storm, trusting in God's provision for us. I don't know what your time in your Bible looks like. I do know this. It's becoming fewer and far between as our culture continues to progress. And I just want to maybe invite you to something old-fashioned. I want to just invite you maybe tomorrow morning to try something. I want you to wake up 10 minutes earlier. And I want you to make whatever beverage of choice you like. Find your little easy chair. And I want you to just spend 10 minutes in your Bible. Just pick a gospel. If you don't know where to start, just pick a gospel. And just, just read a chapter. Don't read 10. Just read a chapter. And just sit there. God, I'm here. I'm with you. Your spirit's here with me. I'm in your word. God, the same spirit of God that inspired the word is in my heart. God, illumine the text that I can just delight in you. You may not see fireworks. You may not feel like everything changed in that moment. You may not even be sure what you just read, but I guarantee you this, you just ate. You just fed your soul. And then, boy, if you're comfortable with that, wake up Saturday morning. 10 minutes earlier, make your coffee, sit there, enjoy it again. And boy, if you'll, if you'll do that on a regular basis, you'll be surprised what God does in your soul, amen? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that the word of God is incredible. And I know that, uh, Father, you've been faithful in the inspiration and preservation of the scriptures, both old and new. You've allowed the translation work to happen so that we don't have to learn Greek and Hebrew. But we in our own mother tongue, in English, we can read this book. And I pray that as we do, we wouldn't simply read it, but allow it to read us. And that, Father, you would do in your word what you promised you would. 
that you would teach, reprove, correct, and train, that we could be men and women who are adequate and equipped for every good work. And so we bless you and thank you that you have not left us alone, groping in the dark for inspiration, but we have chapter and verse of the very God-breathed word of God. And so we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for joining the Well Community Church Podcast. Be sure to check out thewellcommunity.org or our app, The Well Fresno, for more information on us, ways to connect, service times, and locations.